Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Last Folk Hero. The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It's by Jeff Perlman, a New York Times bestselling author. I reached out to him going back over two months ago because I was that anxious to have a conversation with him about Bo Jackson, an athlete that I rooted for wildly, with wild abandon as a fan. And so we're pleased to welcome Jeff joining us from Orange County, California, now that the book is officially out. And Jeff, congratulations. Uh, Even before we talk about the process of putting together the book, uh, I got to tell you this story. My first ever professional baseball game, my grandfather took me to Cleveland, where the Indians at the time were hosting the Kansas City Royals. And Bo Jackson belted three home runs. My grandfather was embarrassed because I cheered so loudly. I was so crazy about the fact that I got to see Bo Jackson hit three home runs uh, that he actually walked away and kind of left me to cheer on my own. That's one of my favorite Bo Jackson stories personally. And I can imagine as you were putting together this book, there were some memories of yours having watched him too. So what is a favorite memory or recollection as a fan of Bo Jackson's that you keep even before you decided you would write a book about him? I would say it was um, when I was 17 years old, 1989, and Bo Jackson led off the All-Star game with a home run. Um, It was in Anaheim. I always fantasized about living in California. I was in New York. I I now live in California, but I always like, (laughs) there's something about California. It was like, everything about it was just perfect. It was, um, he led off. It was in California. The in the booth was Vin Scully with Ronald Reagan. What? Yeah, it was a perfect blue sky, and he hit the shot. It was the second pitch of the game from Rick Rushall, and it was just this perfect shot to dead center. And what I learned from working on this book, that I did not know, is the whole Bo knows ad campaign, the big ad with the Bo you don't know yes. Diddley ad. Yes, um, was scheduled to premiere during the All Star game in the fourth inning. So. All the Nike executives were at Mickey Mantle's restaurant in New York watching this game, nervous about how Bo Jackson would do on the day his ad was campaigning, was <laughs> debuting, and he hits a home run. And in Mickey Mantle's restaurant, all these Nike execs are jumping up and down, screaming, hugging. And one of them told me, like, everyone else in the restaurant is like, what the hell is wrong with these people? Not knowing <laughs> that they just hit, like, the jackpot. We all waited for the next one to come out because everybody loved the Bo Knows campaign for sure. Jeff, this process was extensive, hundreds and hundreds of interviews and obviously years of writing for it to come together. So now that you're actually seeing it in print, people are reading it, you're doing interviews about it. How does it feel? It feels uh, exciting and nerve wracking at the same time and also exhausting. Like it's exciting that, you know, you finish something, you work hard on it, it comes out. You're nauseous because you hope people like it and you hope it's received well and you just like you find yourself in a whirlwind and the weird thing about a book release there's a writer named lee montville who i used to work with at si and he described it perfectly he said you're you live under a cave for two years you just live underground for two years and for two weeks you come out and you're in the sun and then you go back in your cave again and that's exactly what it is to have a book about. exactly is it worth it when a book like this comes out and people talk about it and read it 
Yeah, it is because you feel like you did something and you have a tangible sort of proof of what you did and you put it all together and you, you know, when you go through it all and you're calling people and calling people and reading and reading, all you do is obsess over Bo Jackson for two years. (laughs) It can be really draining and really hard and sort of, you know, isolating. So when it comes out and you get to make the rounds and you get to do stuff like this, there is a real joy to it. For real, there is. And you want to share what you know. Like, I love like you're passionate about Bo Jackson and yes. you have questions about Bo Jackson. And I get to talk because my wife is like, I don't want to hear any more about Bo Jackson. My <laughs> kids are like, I don't want to hear any more about Bo Jackson, <laughs> but you're happy to hear about Bo Jackson. So I'm good. I'm happy to be here. I definitely am. He's the New York times bestselling author of 10 books, but the newest one just out this week, the last folk hero, the life and myth of Bo Jackson. Jeff Perlman is with us after hours on CBS sports radio. Why folk hero? Why is Bo Jackson the last folk hero? So the line was originally said by a great writer, Joe Posnanski. I agreed with it 100%, which is nowadays when guys come up, picture your young, whoever your young athlete is, John Morant, you know, or uh, Joe Burrow, whatever. Right. Whenever they come up, we, we see and know everything about them from the time they were little, or at least high school. Every video, TikTok, Twitter, anything, you name it, we see them. And Bo Jackson, there are all these stories, these mythological stories of things he did balls he hit, runs he made. Oh my God, he ran a four one three forty. No, it was a four one seven. No, it was blah blah blah. He threw a ball so far it broke five windows, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he came along before there was any video proof of it. Like a lot of them really are. They feel like you're telling a Paul Bunyan story or a John <laughs> Henry story. So he really even I think what Joe was talking about specifically was his famous throw in Seattle when he got Harold Reynolds at home plate. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the most viewed throws in the history of baseball. Um, But if you watch it, you'd be surprised, even if you've seen it a million times. The camera never shows him releasing the ball. Like, the camera goes to Harold Reynolds rounding third. So we all know both through it, but we don't actually know how he threw it. We don't know what it looked like when he released it. We have an imaginationary sort of view of it, but we don't know. He's just kind of a folk hero. There's a mythological uh, factor to him. As you were going through the research and talking to so many people who had been part of his life at various stages, did you find out that most of the stories are true or that they are myths and they're they're not actually founded in truth? I would say most are true. It's funny. He wrote in his autobiography in 1990, an autobiography he wrote with uh, Dick Schaap, and um, he wrote about going over his first 21 at Auburn with 21 straight strikeouts. Whoa! And which is crazy and really bad and kind of amazing that someone could be that bad and strike out his first 21 at bats in college. Uh, it also turns out it's not true. In his first game, um, they played Illinois State, and he, um, he was two for five. Uh, his first at bat, he had a single. Now, then he went one for 19. But, like, so you do want to you double, you triple check, you make sure things are right. Did he run a four one three forty? Yeah, he did. When he went to the Raiders later on, they had him run a 40 on grass and pads, and he ran a 4.19 and then a 4.17. My God. Um, in high school, he stole 90 out of 91 bases. He set, as a senior, he set a single season high school, national high school record with 20 home runs and um, in 25 games, and he missed seven games because he had track meets. He won the state decathlon championship both his junior and senior year in Alabama. He also set five state records in track and field. And his senior year, he won the state decathlon championship, sprained his ankle in the process, but the day after winning it, started his only game of the year for the McDory baseball team and threw a, a complete game 13 strikeout gem. <laughs> so 
he was just ridiculous. Like, his athleticism is ridiculous, and most of it honestly checks out. And yet, I think a lot of people, whether they saw him play for real or didn't, would lament the fact that it seemed like his career ended so abruptly, and mm-hmm. it ended far too soon. And I got to tell you, Jeff, your chapter that's entitled Hip it actually hurts me. Just yeah. the idea that he could have been even more and we could have had him longer but this one line that resonates with me he took pride in telling people he refused to lift weights there were no arguments to be made against maintenance yet he didn't run didn't pump iron didn't even eat healthy he was a notorious layabout that blows me away because as you point out there could have been more years to his career and yet he didn't care as much about strength training any idea why that is he was naturally gifted he just was naturally gifted and things came so easily to him that he really didn't need to. Um, and also like, I would argue against myself a little bit. Like one thing I will say is like the injury he actually, that actually incurred that sort of ruined his hip. It was pretty freakish. Like he was running down the sideline in a Raiders game against the Bengals in the playoffs. A linebacker named Kevin Walker grabs his leg. He's uh bow is such a strong runner that basically he keeps moving forward while Kevin Walker is pulling backwards and his <sighs> hip dislodges. And the other thing I'll say this is going to sound weird and you may totally disagree, but it's almost like instinctive of us people in sports and sports fans to say, God, it's such a shame. God, it's such a shame what he could have been. But you can also argue his career and life is much more interesting this way. Like if he goes on to be Eric Dickerson in football and he goes on to be Gary Sheffield in baseball. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's awesome. But there is something really intriguing about the question mark. And there's really something intriguing about a guy vanishing in his basically early 30s and, and just walking off into the sunset. Yes. And maybe he's more interesting that way. Maybe the conversation is a lot more interesting. In the same way, like, we all talk about Kennedy still, but we don't talk about Eisenhower or Woodrow Wilson. Like, part of the reason is because Kennedy died young, so we don't know what was to come. We talk about Tupac and Biggie all the time. We don't talk about, like, Run DMC and the Beastie Boys that often because they had fulfilled career. Like, there's something about the what if mm. of a person yes. that in a weird way, adds to their legacy. My mom and I are huge fans of Jane Austen and her books, as many people are, and she also died young in the middle of writing another manuscript. And the question often is, wow, what if she had lived to be into her 60s or 70s? So agreed with that. Jeff Perlman is a New York Times bestselling author. His latest is The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, and it's available now. It's After Hours on CBS Sports Radio. There were so many elements to his life, as there are to every human, uh, who shaped him and the person, the athlete that he eventually became. As you were going through this process in writing, what were you? What would you say are some of the defining factors and elements of Bo Jackson? Well, I think one is he. Um, you know, he was raised by a single mom, Florence Jackson, um, one of ten in a house. Uh, it was a three-room house, not a three-bedroom house, or three-room house Whoa. where kids were sleeping on the floor. It's his best from Alabama. He had a severe stutter. He was held back in her, as an early age. And his father, A.D. Adams, lived across town with his other family and had very little interaction with Bo. And I think all those sort of slights in life, poverty, hunger, uh, the abandonment of his father, his mom really struggling to make ends meet, uh, I think really played a very profound role when it came to him finding this escape in sports. You know, like he needed something. He needed somewhere to go. And I think sport, it's a common tale in sports. Like, 
sports draws people who are struggling and are looking for a way out and to do something. And I think for him, it really did. Like I, I'm doing the, we don't talk about these things enough, but literally his dad lived across town and had almost nothing to do with him because he was raising his own family. Gosh. Now that has to have an impact on a human being. Yes. In your book, there's a photo of him with his Heisman, his mom, and his dad. And that actually jumped out at me after reading about his family and his situation with his dad. And yet his dad is there in the photo. I know. It's really weird. So um, when he won the Heisman Trophy, um, he invited both his parents. And his dad was there. And if you watch the Heisman Ceremony, which is on YouTube from 85 when he won it, they're like, uh, he, he gives a speech and he calls the different people. This My coach is here and my, my dad is here and my mom is here. And they both stand up, his mom and his dad. And his mom kind of stands up real quickly and his dad soaks it all in and it's so kind of typical like his dad had very little to do with his upbringing in any positive way um and his mom was the rock of his life and his mom was not the one who soaked it in it was his dad who soaked it in and it's just, you know sort of bs the way that happened mm-hmm. um he was really scarred by his father there's no doubt about it what did his teammates have to say about him in football and in baseball about being part of this career that actually was so successful, an all-star in two professional sports? It kind of runs all over the map. Like in, uh, in baseball, there's a lot of regret or sadness over what could have been. Like he, when he signed with the Royals instead of going to the NFL out of college, he was like a very, very raw Mike Trout. Like, he had Mike Trout talent. He mm. truly did. He was a could have been a five-tool guy. He had this Greek god body physique. Uh, he had all the athleticism. He loved baseball. And for a brief sliver of time, he got really hot in the minor leagues his first year in 86 in Memphis, came up to the majors, showed all these flashes, and the Royals really thought they were onto something. And then he decides to play football. And, you know, the team was really upset about that. The players were upset. The front office was upset because they knew he needed development in baseball. So a lot of those guys, Willie Wilson, Frank White, uh, Brett Saberhagen, really in the newspapers and to his face gave him a lot of grief and felt he was making a huge mistake. And in football, um, initially especially, there was a lot of resentment because when he, he agreed to play football, he, he referred to it as his hobby. I'm going to make a hobby out of football. Mm. And there's a, early, in the, uh, early when he reports the Raiders, one of their uh, linebackers, Rod Martin, just is all over him. And he's basically like, this is, this, you may call this a hobby, but this is life for us. Like, this is no hobby to us. And uh, he never, he was not a guy who made super close friends on either team. He had a couple of pals, but he just wasn't that guy. He wasn't hanging out going for beers. He wasn't uh, hitting on women. Like, he was a guy who went home to his wife, went home to his kids, and just wasn't. The Raiders and the Royals, neither team had his phone number. They didn't have his home phone number. Whoa. So when it was time to reach out to him, they had to reach out to him through his agent. Interesting. Yep. What type of interaction, if at all, did you have with Bo in writing the book? Uh, very little. When I first started working on it, I wrote him a letter and sent him a bunch of my books. And one day he called me up. We spoke for about a half hour. It was very pleasant. He was very nice. He said, um, he basically said like, I don't, I don't care if you write this book. Um, I have no interest in helping. Like I get approached all the time. I don't want to do it. And I said, that's fine. I understand. Um, I had a real goldmine moment though, which was, um, as I mentioned, Dick Schaap wrote his autobiography in 1990. And before Dick Schaap died, he donated all his audio recordings and all his interview transcripts from that experience to the Auburn library. And for 30 years, those, those things just all basically sat in the basement at the Auburn library. 
I was made of a layer of it. I think I sent Auburn 250 bucks to transfer the, uh, <laughs> the interviews onto audio and wow. I received this enormous file with like, I don't know how many pages, maybe 500 pages of transcribed interviews, most of which was never used before. Um, so it's basically like talking to a 28-year-old Bo Jackson right. and having all this fresh material. It's one of the best finds I've ever had. I was going to say, what was that like for you? You're essentially oh. hearing his stories in his own words. It was remarkable. It was amazing. It was almost better than interviewing him now because he was fresh in the moment of it all. Wow. And yeah, it was great. It was great. Like really great. <laughs> and I also read an interview that you did in which you talked about going to his hometown and you had to wait through COVID because that's when you were writing this book. Why was that so important to you to get to the place that essentially created Bo? I just think you need to see it and you need to understand it. And there's something really physical and tangible about going to the guy's old house and walking up and down the street and trying to understand and knocking on doors. I knocked on doors, talked to some old neighbors of his and people who knew him. And um, I get made fun of for this. My wife thought I was crazy, but I, his, where he lived is now abandoned. Like the house is torn down uh. and there hasn't been a house, but there's a, uh, there's, you can still see some of the foundation under the weeds and trash. So I took a brick. I actually dug out a brick from his foundation, uh, put it in my suitcase to bring home. And I got stopped at TSA oh, no. in Atlanta. And they're like, why? What is that in your bag? And I was like, that's a brick. And they're like, why are you flying with a brick? And I'm like, do you know who Bo Jackson is? And the guy's like, yeah. I'm like, well, I'm writing a biography of Bo Jackson. This brick is from his house. And he basically called Melissa over, his supervisor. And I'm explaining to Melissa why I'm flying with this Bo Jackson's brick. And she's like, all right, you can fly. Go, go fly with Bo Jackson's brick. So it's on my desk now. My wife was like, why are you doing this? What are you doing? <laughs> Where is he now? Uh, he lives in suburban Chicago. He's a dad. He's a grandpa. He's got a bunch of businesses. He's, you know, he's had, what I really like about his life post-sports is you'll never hear him saying like, uh, Derek Henry, he's no bow. Or, you know, uh, um, Bryce Harper, he's good, but he's not as good as I was. Like, never. You just never hear that from him. He sort of moved on isn't one of those athletes who hangs on and bemoans the way things are done now. Um, I admire his life greatly. One thing I did not know, Jeff, until I did some reading in your book, is that Bo is not his name. So where did Bo come from? His name is Vincent Edward Jackson, named after an actor, Vincent Edwards, from the show Ben Casey that his mother liked. I had um, no idea. None. Yeah. But yeah, there you go. Bo is um, short for boar, which is short for boarhog, which is when he was a kid, him and a bunch of his friends there was a neighborhood farmer who um, who had these hogs, these big hogs. And Bo and his friends, Bo was a real kind of bully as a kid, you know, like really a bully. And wow. uh, he and his friends went with sticks and just for three days <gasps> beat the living crap out of this boar hog. And um, he caught on his nickname boar hog, and then eventually it got shortened to Bo. So that's where Bo is from. I wonder how often he tells that story. Probably not that often. <laughs> and I will say, like, I read about that in the Dick Schaap notes and also in his autobiography, and I went to Bessemer. And I found the guy who owned the hog is dead, but I talked to his son about his dad and the land and all that stuff. So I felt pretty, I felt like I really got something there. Wow. Well, Jeff, obviously you've poured your life and your time and your effort into this book that's just out now. What do you want people to take away from it? This is going to sound corny, but I swear it's true. Like, um, I feel like we live, we've lived through COVID. We live in crazy political times, blah, yes. blah, blah. I just want people to enjoy it. Like, I just want people to be able to sort of revel in the exploits of the greatest athletes ever walk the earth and feel like they were a part of it and feel like they have an understanding. I want, what I really want, honestly, 
I want my kids, my kids' age, to know who Bo Jackson was. Yes. And to, like, he's important, and he's the greatest athlete who ever lived. And the way Jim Thorpe was immortalized, I think Bo Jackson deserves that exact same treatment. Mm. It's funny because I work with producers and also speak to an audience that does include a lot of sports fans who never saw Michael Jordan, never saw Joe Montana or Jerry Rice, or in my case, Larry Bird is my all-time favorite athlete, Magic Johnson. Bo Jackson belongs in that category, and it's a great way to at least capture a piece of him and make him immortal. So the the book is out. It's called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, and there's so much we don't know about him so you want to grab this book from jeff perlman at jeff perlman on twitter new york times best-selling author and i'm so grateful for a few minutes i learned even more and i can't wait to finish the book jeff thank you oh thanks for taking interest i really do appreciate it this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from progressive It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 